you are thinking, well, you have your snow now. It doesn't count. It doesn't count. <laughs> well, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 3. The theme is rejoice, the Lord is king. Now, Philippians 3, verse 1, brings us to a new section in this letter. We know it is a transitional verse because Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, showing that he's beginning his final exhortations as he starts wrapping up the letter to his friends in Philippi. However, he also wrote, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And this shows that he connects his appeal here with what he had already written. It is therefore helpful for us to just pause on this single verse this morning and consider how it is transitional and how it continues Paul's thought from what he has already written. In other words, what does Paul mean when he exhorts the church to rejoice in the Lord? So let's read together from God's word just one verse this morning. Here's the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Finally... My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let's pray. Father, grant us understanding here into this simple verse and how it may encourage us in this new year as we face all the new things to come in 2022. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism opens with this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? We can put it another way. What is your only comfort as you close an old year and face a new year? How would you answer that question? I know how John Owen would answer it. The day before Owen died, he dictated these words to a friend. I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather, who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of my consolation. How can we reach the end of our lives and have this written on our tombstone? How do we get there? Paul will say, rejoice in the Lord. Now, the title for my sermon is Rejoicing as a Safeguard in 2022. And this morning, we will look at this imperative and see how it forms the grounds for what Paul has already said, as well as what he's going to say. In fact, Paul writes that it is safe for you. Or as the NIV translated, it is a safeguard to you. And we'll consider this passage in three points, and I'll present you once again an argument And this is the argument, Christians who rejoice, point two, and do so in the Lord, point three, are kept safe in his hands. Christians who rejoice and do so in the Lord are kept safe in his hands. I just love it how we conclude it with that beautiful hymn that we just sung, because that's going to be where we're going to with this this sermon here this morning as we look at how we can be encouraged in this new year. So let's look at the first point, Christians who rejoice is our first point. Now, throughout the entire 
letter, Paul has either been rejoicing or has called Christians in Philippi to rejoice with him. For example, in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul rejoiced that the gospel is being preached throughout the entire Roman Empire, whether in pretense or in truth. And in chapter 2, verse 18, he called the Christians to be glad and rejoice over his sacrificial offering of his own life for the furtherance of their faith. But Paul has not just called them to rejoice, he has also used the cognate verb joy as an expression of his faith and theirs in various places. For example, in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, Paul recalls the partnership of the Philippian church with him in the gospel ministry with joy. And later on, he writes in 1 verse 25 that his purpose as an apostle is for their progress and joy in the faith. Once in the letter so far, Paul turns the word joy into an imperative or into a command. When he wrote in chapter 2 verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And once Paul connected the two verbs of joy and to rejoice together when he sent Epaphroditus back to them, literally being received back from the dead, and he wrote this in chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and so receive him in the Lord with all joy. So we can see Philippians is the letter of joy. That's why people call it this. It's full of rejoicing and joy and calls, Paul's call for them to rejoice with him and to have joy in the Lord. But for the first time in the letter, Paul is going to command the Philippian Christians to rejoice with these words in 3 verse 1. Finally, my brothers, and you can say my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul moves from the subjective, be happy with me, or I'm happy for you, to the imperative, you must be. Now we need to stop and ask ourselves, how can Paul write this? Or how can he ask this of this church that is facing the kind of pressures they were facing? If you can recall, they were experiencing serious onslaught from the culture around them, so much so that some of their own members' lives or livelihoods were being threatened. And we also notice from chapter 2 that they were experiencing internal divisions that sapped the joy from them in many ways. So as a result of these situations... It's really understandable that Paul presents them reasons why they should rejoice. Or he gives them instances which, by which they can express their joy. We can understand when Paul says, give them reasons. You should rejoice because of this or have joy in that because of the situations they face. But here Paul tells them, you must rejoice. And guess what? He will even defend is using the imperative mood by adding this. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. The word translated as trouble can also be translated as tedious in this context. Paul is saying, hey, my constant calling to you to rejoice and to have joy isn't redundant or tedious. And then he will add, it is safe for you. Or it is a safeguard to you. 
In other words, Paul is saying to rejoice is absolutely necessary for the survival of your faith. Why is this so? Well, the context of this command is chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. And if you can recall from our exposition of that passage, Paul is referencing the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness wanderings, which revealed their lack of faith and trust in the promises of God. So what's the antidote to that grumbling? The antidote to grumbling is found in the Psalms, and especially the Psalms that call for Israel to rejoice. And guess what? Psalms that call for God's people to rejoice amid adversity are plentiful. I want us to consider just a handful of examples. Psalm 32 verse 11 calls for believers to rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Why? Psalm 33 verse 20 to 21 tells us, We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. David writes in Psalm 40, verse 16, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord is exalted. And an antidote to daily depression is found in Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So to rejoice, even amid adversity, is the heartbeat of the people of God. Why? Because we have been saved from destruction. How can we be a morose people when we have been, in Paul's own words from Philippians 1 verse 28, received salvation in contrast with the destruction of the world around us? If the Christian can grasp that, if they can understand, they can see the destruction that's around them and that they have been saved, they can have spiritual lenses to see that, they will have a rejoicing heart in every situation. And Paul is giving you that spiritual lenses here. That's what he's trying to do. Now that's Betsy right over there. <laughs> you know that sound right there. Try and tell her that's not what girls do. <laughs> so here's the thing you've got to look at the world around you that is under destruction if you want to have joy in the Lord. This is exactly what Israel was called to do. Look at the idolatry of the pagans. Look at the world around you. Look at the folly of the idolatry. Look at them going to destruction. And when you go to the temple, you will rejoice in your salvation that God himself has worked for you. And so Paul is drawing from from the history, from the Psalms at this point, as he calls the church to rejoice. Now, you may ask me, isn't there room for lament in the Christian life? I mean, are we just always supposed to be happy? And I'm glad you asked me that. Because there indeed is a place for lament in the Christian life. But it is key to understand that Paul's command to rejoice does not dismiss the difficulty of our circumstances. Paul is going to address anxiety in chapter 4, verse 46, and once again use the call to rejoice as an antidote to anxiety. 
But over there, what he does, together with rejoicing, Paul will add thanksgiving and supplication in prayer. And this is often how many psalms of lament ends. With supplication, thanksgiving, and rejoicing. So even in the Psalms of Lament, it ends with this, this hope of the believer in the supplication, the prayer, and the rejoicing. Consider Psalm 69, which is a classic Psalm of Lament. The psalmist concludes there in verses 29 to 32, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. When the humble see it, they will be glad, literally, they will rejoice. Once again, the psalmist's anguish, in his anguish, he brings himself to recall the salvation of God, and in this he gives thanks and rejoices. So even in the Psalms of Lament, there is a turning point where the psalmist himself focuses on the salvation that God has accomplished and through those lenses turns to joy even amidst the darkness. So yes, there is place for lament. There is place for sorrow. There is place for heartbreak. But the Christian looks at the salvation that has been accomplished through God and turns his heart onto that hope. So it is crucial for us to understand that Paul is recalling the Psalms and his command to rejoice in the Lord and calling for the church to reflect the attitude of faithful Israel as they sing their hymns of celebration and lament. Israel was called to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of their circumstances, because of the salvation that He alone can accomplish. And so are we. This is what Paul's saying. So, the first point, Christians who rejoice. Second point, and do so in the Lord. And do so in the Lord. Very crucial point over here. Paul doesn't just say that Christians ought to rejoice. Just be happy. Don't worry. Be happy, you know. But he adds particularly in the Lord. In the Lord. And we saw this refrain from the Psalms, if you picked it up. The question we are faced with here is whether Paul is referring to Yahweh in the Old Testament or is he referring to Jesus as Lord? Now, I will tell you that's a false dichotomy in Paul's mind, but let's get to the point. From the context of Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11, we would assume that Paul is referring to Jesus, of whom it is written that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the context. That's what Paul's thinking of. But this passage has an Old Testament background, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, where Yahweh says of himself, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament says every tongue shall confess. Paul is taking that direct quotation from Isaiah, which references Yahweh and applying it to Jesus as Lord. So for Paul... When God has promised to save his people in the Old Testament, it was through Jesus that that promise is realized. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of all the salvific promises of God. Paul says he is the yes to all of the promises. In Christ is the salvation that is accomplished by God's promises in the Old Covenant and realized in the New Covenant that we Christians, the Jews and Gentiles, will be brought into one church, the Christian church, and we will be saved through that same promise. So here, once again, we are brought to in the Lord. But what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? How do we rejoice in the Lord? Firstly, we are to rejoice because we know him. We know him. Now, this language is picked up in verse 3 of chapter, chapter 3 here, when Paul contrasts the vibrant faith of true believers with the works-based religion of the false teachers. Paul writes, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, the Christians, new covenant believers, we, we are the circumcision, Old Testament reference. We are the covenant people of God because we are the Spirit and we glory in Christ. Now, the word translated here as glory can also be translated as boasting. We are the ones who boast in Christ. And this also has an Old Testament reference, and that's found in Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24, where the Lord says through Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. If you're a Christian and you know Christ, you know the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. J.R. Packer's Knowing God is an excellent book to get. If you don't know what that means to know the Lord, if you want to read the exposition of that, get Jai Packer's Knowing God. You see, here is the key for a Christian to rejoice. If there is any boasting at all for the Christian, it is in the fact that he or she knows the Lord. This is exactly where Paul goes when he disregards his, the procedure of his own Jewish heritage in chapter 3, verse 8, and writes this, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To know Christ is to boast in him. And to boast in him is to rejoice in knowing him. Secondly, we rejoice when we suffer on account of the gospel. Now, we've looked at this before many times. Paul had already alluded to this in chapter 1, verse 29, when he wrote this, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He will pick up on this theme again in chapter 3, verse 10, when he writes that part of knowing Christ is to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then Paul writes that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's becoming like Christ. And Paul was convinced 
then an authentic and vibrant Christian faith will bring the Christian at some point into conflict with the world and its systems. That's what he told Timothy. All who strive to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. At some point, your faith will come to conflict with the world and its systems. And when it does, this should produce joy in the believer's life because you've been counted worthy to suffer for your Lord, who himself suffered for you. This is why, for Paul, to live was Christ and to die was gain. Paul didn't see suffering as a burden, but a privilege. It was a megaphone to declare the glory and majesty of Christ, which is how 1 verse 20 can be translated. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that now with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored or literally magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And so, as Paul wrote in Romans 5 verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And thirdly, we are to rejoice that we belong to Christ. So we know him as a result of knowing him. We suffer with him. Because we suffer for him, we belong to him. This is a precious promise. And this is what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 12 to 16. After he, he references his desire to suffer with Christ and to attain the resurrection, he continues. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And he says this, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a beautiful promise. And this is a significant point because it is the grounds of our entire comfort. This is what John Owen is referencing. We are his sheep. We are his people. And he cares for us. That's where Paul's going to go to with struggling anxiety. The Lord is near. He is near to you in your suffering. He cares for you because you belong to him. In answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The Catechism answered it this way. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to describe the privileges of being owned by him. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my heavenly Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And then he concludes with this wonderful promise. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a promise. Friends, this is what it means to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in knowing him. To rejoice in our sufferings on behalf of him, for he suffered for you. And to rejoice that we belong to him and he cares for us. He nourishes us. He's with us when we suffer. 
So Christians who rejoice and do so in the Lord, point three, are kept safe in his hands. This is where we're going to. I want to draw attention to the final phrase of this verse where Paul writes, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's safe for you. The NIV translate that phrase, it is a safeguard for you. The question is, why does Paul connect rejoicing in the Lord with being safe? What are we safe from? If you want a safe space, right, this is it, rejoicing in the Lord. Why? We know that believers are not safe from calamity and suffering. We know that's true. The health and wealth prosperity gospel is false. We will suffer. That's the testimony of the New Testament. That's the testimony of the entire canon of Scripture. God's people will suffer. Hebrews 11. In fact, believers are in greater danger from conflict in a culture that opposes the Christian faith. You become a Christian, you probably will face more suffering in many ways. But I want to look again at one sentence from the answer given in the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. All things. I think this captures well what Paul means that it is safe for us. See, because we belong to him, he protects us from falling away. This is Paul's point in that wonderful promise found in chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the promise. And so Paul writes that he will risk sounding redundant in order to drive home the point that those who rejoice in the Lord through calamity show that they are the children of God. And this means that we are secured in his mighty hands. (laughs) In fact, all events work together for my salvation. This is what Romans 8 verse 31 to 39 so beautifully teaches. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise to believers. Friend, that's exactly why Owen can say at the end of his life, I'm going to him who my soul has loved, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of my consolation. 
The grounds of Owen's consolation wasn't the external requirement of the law, which Paul tackles head-on from verse 2 onwards, and we'll look at that next time we meet. The grounds of the consolation was the work of the Spirit which binds us together in Christ and through whom we have come to know him and belong to him. It is not your church attendance. It is not your personal Bible study. It is not the amount of money that you've tithed. It's grounded in Christ and his redemption on your behalf with his precious blood. He has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. That's your boast. And for those, he protects you in his love. There's nothing that can separate a believer from Christ. And this is the only grounds for Owen's and our consolation, his love for us and our love for him. We love because as John writes in 1 John 4 verse 19, he first loved us. And this love, as John says in that passage, this is perfect love. And perfect love casts out fear. The fear of being lost. The fear of falling away. The fear of God's displeasure with us. The fear of God's favor being removed for us. It casts out fear. So in concluding, what is there to fear in 2022? What is there to fear if you belong to Christ? If you're his, what is there to be worried about? What anxieties do you face in this upcoming year? What uncertainties? Rejoice, dear friends, in the Lord. Rejoice that you know him. Rejoice that you belong to him. And rejoice that he holds you in his hands. And he will not let you go. Not through 2021, not through 2022, never. All things that the believer will face is working together for his glory and your good in your salvation. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gospel of grace. This new year that we're facing, may the rejoicing of us as believers be on our lips. May we be the ones that through the trials and the struggles, the failures of 2021 and the fears of 2022, that we come back to this place and rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice that we know Christ. Rejoice even in the sufferings that we will face in this year to come. And rejoice that he will not let us go, for he has loved us with an everlasting love. We glory in this. In Jesus' name, amen.